All right. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your word and for uh, the fact that you teach us, even though uh, you're under no obligation to God, and you speak to us words of life and uh, words that um, teach us who you are, and we're so thankful for that. So as we dig into your word today, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts to the truths that are in your scripture, and that we would be reminded of your faithfulness to your own glory, as well as to our good. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's a handout right there. All right. So we are uh, talking about the second part of the historical book. So who was here for last week's uh, lesson? Just so I I get an idea. A few of you guys. All right. So Harry covered uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, um, first and second Samuel, and what so just to sum up what he was talking about, he this is Israel after they came out of Egypt and they were wandering the desert, and then they they finally found uh, found a place to, to reside. Um, and these people, they want the the people of God. They say we want someone to rule over us. So God says, I'm going to give you these people, and they continually fail. They fail. They fail. These are the judges that God has given the Israelites. And um, it's story after story of failure, people not being able to live up to what God has called them to live up to. So uh, we come to, oh, I'm sorry, and uh, the, the promise that God has given at this point is, uh, if you guys have your Bibles, we'll turn there. This isn't in your bulletin, but if not, I'll just read it out. But today we're going to talk about the, the Davidic covenant. So I'll write this down. Um. Can I ask you to uh, close the door over there? Uh, the um, the auditorium. Thank you. Does anyone remember what the Davidic covenant is? So we talked about there was the uh, there was the Adamic covenant with the covenant that God made with Adam, and then there is the Mosaic covenant. Uh, so do you guys remember the Davidic covenant? All right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to read the Davidic Covenant. This is the promise that God made with David. So in, so in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 14. I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 16. I'll, I'll start from 13 and read all the way to 16. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all his vision. Nathan spoke to David. So... This is God speaking to David. He's saying that, David, you're on the throne now, but your throne is going to last forever. And from this throne is going to come a king that will rule eternally, a king that will be a good king. So uh, Harry covered this last week in our in our study. And this is uh, and the rest of this Sunday school lesson, the rest of the historical books are under the shadow of this David covenant. So this is the David covenant is the 
is what you have to keep in mind as you read through all these books because this is ultimately what matters. And today as we go through the books, we'll see how God sustains his people, how he uh, remains faithful to his covenant. So just to give us an idea of what's happening here, have you guys ever heard of this uh, entertainer? Her name is called the Red Panda. She's kind of well known if you've gone to NBA games. What she does is she kind of travels around the NBA circuit and she, and also other shows. And, uh, I saw her at a conference and what she does is she, she rides on this uh, big, big unicycle. She's probably 20 feet in the air, maybe 15 feet in the air. And, um, what she does is she has these, uh, bowls on her feet and she throws them up and she catches them on her head. And the, her whole act is her just riding back and forth on this unicycle. One leg on the bike, the other leg holding these bowls, and she kicks them up one by one by one, and she stacks them up on her head. And the whole time, it's really entertaining because this whole time you're wondering, is she going to fall? Is she going to fall? Is she going to fail? Because it seems like there's no way she can do what she's going to do. And as you're watching the act, you're thinking, all right, when's, when is she going to fall? Because there's no way this, this can happen. And this is what I think of when I think of these historical books is... God has made a promise to his people, and he's saying, uh, this is what's going to happen. But things, as you read through the book, you're thinking, okay, when are the people going to fail? When is God? When is God's promise going to fail? Because there's no way, as we read the stories, there's no way that God's promise can come true. So, we'll see, uh, we'll see what uh, God says in these, in his books here. So, uh, just, I have here the historical books part two. So the rebellion of Adam repeated, this is all throughout the Bible, actually. The necessity of God's presence, we'll talk about the temple and the life of the Jewish people. And then God's commitment to his people. So the rebellion of Adam repeated, the necessity of God's presence and God's commitment to his people. So uh, we've got about one or two verses per book here. And um, of course, we can't cover everything, but we'll just talk... uh, Talk about the things that are pertinent to the Davidic covenant. All right, so the first uh, first two books is actually one book. In the uh, if you look at uh, how things were written, it's First uh, and Second Kings. We have it as two books in the English Bible, but then it was originally one book. So we're going to talk about the about Solomon's temple. We're going to talk talk about how the kingdom, the king, covenant community, is divided, and then we'll also talk about how Israel and Judah are thrown into exile. So to start off, we're, we're talking about the Davidic covenant. So we have David here. Who can tell me who David's son is? Solomon. Solomon. All right, so here, God promises David, there's going to be someone coming from your throne who's going to rule your people, and this is going to be a good king. So our first shot at like a human ruler who fulfills the Davidic covenant is Solomon. So just to give you guys a little background, uh, Solomon was, uh, he's, he's described as the wisest man in the world. And he, uh, full, full of vision, he, ha- he was able to lead God's people. And what he does is he builds the temple for the people of God. And who can tell me, does anyone know what the temple of God is? Have you guys heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, it's the resting place of the Ark. It's, okay. it's the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. So, here, as we talk about the, 
the temple, we're gonna, also going to talk about Eden. So, because, this is not the temple, but uh, let's just, this is the Ark of Covenant. Um, it's an AC unit right there. Uh, this, is a, this is a temple. And what is a temple for the people of God? The, the temple is the, is the dwelling place of God. And the temple represents that God is here with his people, that God is pleased with his people, that God maintains a relationship with his people. And this is what's promised throughout the scriptures, saying that God says, I'm going to be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell amongst you. So it's a huge deal that now at this point in Israel's history, they have come to a place that they can call their own, and they're building a temple. And this is what Solomon does. So what he does is he builds this temple that signifies the presence of God. Um, so, so what the temple is is if you guys look, remember back in the story of Genesis, there is uh, where do Adam and Eve reside? They, they reside in Eden, and Eden is this perfect place where God has a relationship with Adam and Eve. God dwells with His people. And then what happens to them? They sin, and then they're exiled. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This is a story of Israel repeated over and over and over. The Israelites, they have a relationship with God. God is in their presence, but they sin. And because they sin, they're kicked out. So this is them wandering. This, Them in exile, the Israelites in exile, it's... Um, as we look at them in the desert, wandering in the desert, this is them saying, we don't have a place, we don't have, um, we don't have an Eden, this place where we can rest, this place where we can relate with God. But finally, at this point in the story, they can be with God, and they can, and now they're saying, okay, we can build a temple, and this signifies the dwelling of God, alright? So, at this point, they're kind of here, and, Eden, and Solomon, he builds this magnificent temple, and it's it's the inside it's completely covered in gold and there's all these like exotic woods and when people look at it, it's just if we saw it with our own eyes, we'd be holy cow. Like I think of um if you guys have ever been to Vegas, you know how everything's artificial but they have these really beautiful buildings. Uh if you look at the inside there's like beautiful art and the architecture's amazing and Solomon's temple was ten thousand times more amazing. This reckons, this calls us back to Eden. This is, and at this point in Israel's history, people are thinking, alright, we have a good king. Solomon was a good king. We have the, t- the temple, which is God's dwelling with his people. Things look good. But, what happens? Solomon, if you guys remember, Solomon, he, there's a downward trajectory to his reign. Alright, so this is, uh, uh let me, actually let, let's read, um, 1st Kings 8. Um, can I have a, a volunteer who's willing to read these v- verses right here? There's two paragraphs. Can I ask Jung and Christine to read these two paragraphs? Sure. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you on an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to, in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. 
Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Thank you. So Solomon, as he's saying this, he's remembering the covenant that God made with his father David. He says, uh, as the Lord promised, I've built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So here, Solomon is saying, I'm do- I'm, I'm- it looks like the Davidic covenant is being fulfilled. Here is David's, someone from David's throne, uh, an offspring of David, who is a king, and he is here building his temple. So what happens? Things at this point, things are looking like they're looking pretty good. It's, just, it's kind of an Eden-like existence for Israel. But what happens? Solomon he compromises, and this is the story that's repeated with all the almost all the kings. Uh, Solomon he had. Let me just give you guys some numbers. He had seven hundred wives. Uh, well, first off, he was married to uh, Pharaoh's daughter, who is. Not a uh, who's not a Jew, so or a, a, uh, someone from God's covenant community. Uh, on top of that, he has seven hundred wives and he has three hundred concubines. And of these, there were foreign wives or foreign concubines. And as these women, can you imagine just having handling a thousand women? Like I, I can't even recite a thousand people's names who I, who I know. He and here's a guy who has all these women at his disposal. And of course, these people are not, uh, these are, they're foreigners and they influence Solomon and they introduce to him different gods. And what Solomon does is he, uh, he, he compromises. He says, okay, the God of Israel, um, there's, there are other gods. And Solomon, he builds these temples to other gods. This is Solomon rebelling against God. And from this point, God says, All right, Solomon, you're not the guy. You're not the guy that's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Someone else is going to come. So, from Solomon, he has a son, Rehoboam. This is his son. There's another guy who is, uh, his name is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is not a family member, family member but he was someone that worked under under Solomon and uh, he, Jeroboam was told that he would take Solomon's place by a prophet and Solomon hears about it and he freaks out he says alright I gotta get rid of Jeroboam because I don't want to give up my throne so Jeroboam he uh, Jerobo- so Jeroboam he uh, gains some he gains some uh, power he has some people under him but there's also Rehoboam who is Solomon's son and Rehoboam, so uh, it's important for us to uh, mark these, to remember these two people, because as we talk about the history of Israel, we see that Israel is divided. So, so at, at the point of Solomon, there, there's a, it's, Israel is united with Jeroboam, and this is, I want to make sure that I uh, get all the details right. So um, Jeroboam, he, he goes to Rehoboam and he says, your father is... The the um, 
the requirements he puts on our my people, it's unreasonable. So he goes to Rehoboam and he says, can you can can these restrictions, can these uh, burdens that were placed on our people be restricted? Rehoboam says, let me think about it. And he talks to some older people that give him good advice. He, he also talks to some younger people who give him bad advice. And he says, no, you, your people, uh, I'm not going to give you what you want. So with that, Jeroboam, he takes his people, 180,000 uh, people, and he... He says, all right, we're not going to uh, be under you. And then Rehoboam, he freaks out and he says, all right, we're, I'm going to start a war with Jeroboam. So this is the start of the uh, division of Israel. So this says, do not erase. Let me... Uh... Jeroboam, he is the king of the north. Rehoboam is a king of the south. So, and the north has ten kingdoms, or ten tribes, and the south has two tribes. If we look at the history of the north, all their kings are wicked. So Jeroboam, he starts out good, but he again compromises. He, he rebels against God, and he does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is a story that's repeated for all the kings of the north. For the king, and they're called Israel. Let me, uh. And then the south is called Judah. So Rehoboam leads Judah. And the kings, they, uh, politically and also spiritually, things are better for the south because, um, Rehoboam, even though he also compromises, there are some good kings in the line of kings for the north. So we've got Israel, we've got Judah, we've got these two uh, two factions. And just to get uh, a little bit of trivia, do you guys know why we call Israelites or Jewish people Jews now instead of uh, Israelites? It stems from Judah. So... We see the story of God focusing on the people of the north because these are the people that remember the Davidic covenant. Someone from your throne is going to come. There is David. There is Solomon. There is Rehoboam. And what the what the covenant says is there's going to be someone from Solomon, from David and Solomon and Rehoboam's line. And the and the north is where Jerusalem was, and this is where the temple was, and the um, the biological line will come from Rehoboam. So. We see God keeping his promise uh, through Rehoboam. And we have these good kings that maintain the worship of God. All right? So any questions at this point? I'm, I hope I'm not being too... I know there's a ton of names. And, uh, what, it's because um, the ten northern tribes, when they were conquered by Assyria, they were essentially wiped out. Right. So we never hear from them again. They're actually resettled. Um, but then they mix with the paganites, so they become Samaritans. Right. And so essentially they're lost. Yeah. So there's only two tribes left. And Judah by far is the biggest, because if you remember back in Judges, Benjamin was almost wiped out. So Benjamin's maybe ten, a tenth the size of Judah. So everyone's a Judite. So Judite, Judite, Judite. Yeah, so uh, you, it, we, we call them Jews because there's, uh, we call them Judeans, uh, we call them Jews. So, um, uh, so we, we see a lot of the focus on the South and we see that uh, the uh, as, as the northern kings, as they fail, 
they're they're thrown into exile. So they their their reign ends in seven twenty two BC. They're taken over by the Assyrians, and God has kept His promise. If you do not maintain the co- your, this covenant relationship, I'm going to destroy you, and they are destroyed. The Assyrians take them over, and then for the south, they last longer. They go until five eighty six BC. There's not as much. This is like the main part of history I'm teaching you guys, so there's not going to be as much later on. But I think it's important for us to remember this. Um, and they're taken over by Babylon. But in the meantime, there's God is God is saying through the south, through Judah, this is where I'm going to maintain my promise. The the Davidic covenant. It looks like things are going bad as Solomon as his uh, as his reign degrades as he does evil in the sight of the Lord. We go, oh no, I'm not sure. It's is this really going to happen? Israel, they're they're wiped out. The Assyrians have taken them over. And actually, if we look at history, Assyria also wanted to take the north as well. But then there was a good king. His name was Hezekiah. And he was the one that was able to uh, stop the Assyrians. And also he has a son. His name is Josiah. And Josiah, his name is... he He's another king. And his uh, name means the Lord has healed. So through these good kings, they, they try to rebuild the temple... They try to maintain this relationship with God that they're supposed to have. But here, Israel is wiped out. There are no more. Rehoboam, everything hinges on things going well with Judah. All right? So that brings us to uh, 2 Kings 21. Can I have Gail? Can I have you read uh, this chapter right here? Menace led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Thanks. So, I, I spoke about this King Hezekiah. He had a son, Manasseh, who basically feel, sealed the fate of of, uh, of the people of God. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God said, I'm keeping my promise again. You guys are going into exile. So, um, this is this is the story of actually First Kings and Second uh, Kings, also First and Second Chronicles. Uh, but uh, at this point, once once the Babylonians take the south, then they're brought to exile. So there's sin. We see this <coughs> repeated again, and there there's exile. Just as Adam and Eve were in Edom, just as they sinned as these kings and, and God's people did, they were sent into exile. So uh, the just short the, the big themes in first and second kings is there's an Eden like habitation built, which is the temple, and then it's destroyed as the people of God sin, um, and they're sent into exile, and then David's biological son, the Davidic covenant, there's someone coming from your throne, David. These guys You're saying that Manasseh seals the Right. 
He was so wicked, yeah. There's, uh, there's, um, if you guys look at a chart of all the kings, there were 20 kings for both the north and the south. Every one of them was not able to do what they were supposed to do. And, um, we have, there's a story of a couple of good kings. Uh, Josiah is the guy that really stands out. Josiah is a guy who, um, he was killed in, in battle, but, um, for the most parts, all the kings failed. They started out good. Uh, most of them started out with good intentions. They started out as god worshippers, but they compromised. They they took in these pagan influences and they started building altars to other gods. They started um, worshiping other gods. That's not good, and God has punished them for that. Um, first and Second Chronicles it covers a lot of what is in First and Second Samuel as well as First and Second Kings. Um, so there is some repeat, but then First and Second Chronicles, it kind of takes, it's um, it's a little bit more gracious towards the people that are written in it, and um, it what the focus of First and Second Chronicles is the hope. It's not as dark, even though it contains the failures of the kings. So I am going to uh, read through these. Uh, this focuses on the restoration and division of the covenant community. We talked about that earlier, as well as the role of the temple. So, Shawen, can I have you read Second Chronicles 36, please? Sure. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all abominations of the nation. They pleaded the house of the Lord that he had made holy Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of the fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messenger of the of the, the, the measures of the God, despising his word and scoffing as prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people until there was a remedy. Alright, so again we see a, that the kings, the the leaders of Israel, they have profaned God in Israel. And uh, even though God sent prophets saying like, you guys need to clean up your act, you guys need to return to God, they failed. Uh, and then um, we're thinking at this point, Again, all right, man. There's so much, there's so much um, sin. There's so much uh, rebellion against God that again, I don't know if this can happen. If the Davidic covenant can be really fulfilled. Uh, and let me, before I jump to Second Chronicles 36, let me read uh, Romans one. Um, actually, can I have? It was Aaron. Aaron, can I have you read Romans? This is actually not Romans one. It's actually Romans eleven. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Alright, so that, there's that, that's in, in Romans 11, and it's not chapter, uh, verse 1 either, I think it's verse 2 or 3. But anyways, um, Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, he's saying, do you guys remember what happened with the Israelites, do you, do you not remember that there were prophets like Elijah speaking up against these evil kings, saying you guys need to turn back to God? Do you remember that? And do you remember how they continually failed, but yet God still kept His promise to His people? He still said the the Davidic covenant, as bad as things looked, I'm still going to keep my covenant with my people. And this is a story of God over and over and over. Is even though you will fail. Even though you sin, I will not forget my promise to you, no matter how much you screw up. Because all these kings, they're pointing to a greater king. 
and we see here as we go to David and Solomon and Rehoboam, we, we see that Jesus comes from the line of David um, through through this tribe right here, through this through through the um, south, through the through Judah. Uh, God says, "I'm going to keep my promise to you." And then we see this. We see how God works this out in Ezra and Nehemiah. So before we hit that, we're going to talk about Second uh, Chronicles 36. I'm sorry, these are like I must have like copied and pasted stuff. Um, but Second uh, Chronicles 36. This is the right chapter for this passage that I'm reading. Um, it's Rachel. Is that right? Can I have you read Second Chronicles 36, please? This is Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. All right, thank you. So the, the temple has been destroyed, and here comes this Persian king. His name is Cyrus, and he has favor on the people of God. And he says, I'm going to issue a decree that says... You guys can build up again the temple, and God is working through these through these Gentile kings, saying, um, even though these are not they're they're not part of your your group of people, I'm still going to work through them. I'm going to soften the hearts of these Gentile kings so that they can do what I have called you to do. So that brings us to Ezra and Nehemiah. So at this point, the people of God are sent into exile between. First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, which is Ezra and Nehemiah are also one book in the old Jewish scriptures. Um, they're, they're brought back to their lands. So they go from exile and then they go back to the land. And then uh, if you look here on this on a sheet, we have the return from exile. We have the restoration of the temple and we have the building of the wall. So as we get to Ezra there is there's this guy Ezra who wants who's committed to building the temple again and because favor has been shown on the on the Jewish people uh, God works through him and he allows Ezra to rebuild the temple so um, Ezra 3 who do I, can I have John Pryor can I have you read Ezra 3 verse 10 please uh, and all the way to the end and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the people shouted with a great shout when they when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. <coughs> but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted along for the joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Thank you. The people of God, they saw the, the foundations of the temple being laid. And these are people that were still around when the old temple was around. And they remember this grand, majestic um, building so that God could dwell with his people. And they saw it destroyed. And can you imagine just if the, if the temple was a center of life in, for the people of God, how heartbreaking it must have been to see this completely destroyed but here they, they see again, there's another temple being built and God is going to dwell with his people again. And we see here in this passage that John read, the foundation is being laid and the people see it being laid. And then people, some people rejoice because they're like, they're thinking, 
my goodness, this is amazing. We're going to have our temple again. And they're so happy. But the people that remember what the old temple was like, they remember how great and grand it was. And this foundation, if this was the old temple, just graphically, this is the new one. And I see... Wow, this, this new temple is not as great and grand as the old one. And the, the old people of, of the Jews, they, they wept because they were so, they remembered the former glory. And, and we, we see that how, how, how much the people need the dwelling of God. And we see how much they, um, how, how, how sad they feel that it wasn't the, how it was nor prior. So, the fact that the, this new temple is smaller, it's not as great, there's got to be another temple that's even greater than that. But we see little shadows of that in Ezra and Nehemiah as the temple is built. So we see as the temple is built that there is opposition from the, from, uh, from the enemies of Israel. First they say, let's help you with building this. And Ezra says, no, actually you guys are Gentiles, you guys can't help. And they had mixed motives in helping them build the temple. So they wanted to... I think, I mean, just to interrupt, sorry, that verse where, like, they could, they could distinguish between the sound of crying and the sound of joy is so, like, poignant. Like, there was, like, this big cacophonous sound, and it was weeping and laughing, intermixed, mm-hmm. right? And I think, like, that perfectly captures the whole thrust of the experience of Israel, right? Which is um, this tragic failure and Mm-hmm. It's like intermixed. Yeah. And it's like graphically, or it's a uh, display so dramatic in that one scene. Yeah. It's a, it's a great scene. I like, uh, if there, there's a scene in, um, in First Kings when the original temple is built, and as the, as the people of God are, are worshiping God in that scene, the presence of God is so thick, um, that it says the people were completely overwhelmed by the glory of God. And, if you were around at that time, it says even the priests, they weren't able to perform their priestly functions because I don't know if you guys have ever um, experienced the presence of God. Like just you knew that God was there and it just felt like it was crushing you. This is what the people of God experienced when the temple, when the temple was, when the old temple was, um, was around. And maybe people, they heard like, man, through their fathers and their forefathers and that this stuff happened. So they recognize the significance of the temple. And here again, they're thinking, okay, maybe this can happen again. But, um, but yeah, this, this, uh, it's a smaller temple. It's not as great or grand, but it's still, uh, it still reminds the people of God that God has made a covenant with them and I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to fulfill the promise that I made to your father, David. So, um, yeah, so, uh, the temple is built, and then also during this time, there was a problem of, it's called, uh, of intermarriage. So the people of God, they married wives from foreign nations. And there's a, it's kind of embarrassing where Ezra, he reads the names of these guys that married foreign women. And he says, if you guys want to remain pure, if you guys want to be holy before God, you guys need to, you guys need to cut off these relationships with these foreign women. And Ezra reads the names of, of these people, of these men, and they say, this guy, John, and Robert, and Joe, you guys married Gentiles. They need to... I need, I'm sne- I need to sneeze, sorry. 
Okay, sorry. Um, th- and there's just if you can imagine all these foreign wives being told you guys can't be here anymore. Our family ties need to be com- completely cut off. And can you imagine how heartbreaking it is to see your wife and your children because they're mixed? They can't be a part of uh, of these people of God because they're not Jewish. And it sounds very harsh. But it speaks of God's holiness. God says he can't stand before sin. There cannot be any sin in God's presence. Because of that, you have to do this painful act of cutting off these family members. Because I'm holy. And they were, they were totally serious about this because they saw what a little bit of sin could do to their, to their, their, their previous kings. Remember, uh, Solomon, he had all these foreign wives and what did they do to him? They caused him to compromise. He rebelled against God because he had these other influences. And Ezra says, your wives, they need to go. Um, So um, that's what happens in Ezra. We also have Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he remembers there were temple, there were walls built around the temple. And the walls were, they identified the, the, the people of God. They said, I'm, not only is this a physical wall, but this is a wall that identifies that you are a part of the covenant community. You are the people that I'm going to keep my promise to. So Nehemiah, he was this very holy man when he re, when he remembered when he realized that the former walls of Jerusalem had been or, or of uh, around the temple had been torn down. He wept, um, and he was a man of prayer. He was and he was the one that was charged to rebuild the walls. So the walls were rebuilt, and um, and uh, this brings us to Nehemiah 6. Can I have, uh, Jesse, can I have you read Nehemiah 6, please? So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Emily in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. All right, thanks. So, um... The wall is built, and there's also a scene in Nehemiah when Nehemiah, he finds the law, and he reads a law to the people of God. And the people, remember people didn't have, like, Bibles back in the day? Like, no one could afford to have printed anything. So if you were to hear the word of God, it had to be read to you. Nehemiah, he reads a law to God's people. He reads God's words to his people. And the people hear it for the first time. And what is their response there's revival breaks out because they see that God has spoken to them and they see how sinful they are. And there's this, there's a scene where the people of God, they're weeping because they're so brokenhearted over their sin. And at this point in the story, they remember the covenant that God had made to them and they renew their covenant vows to God. They say, God, we will be faithful to you. You have called us to be faithful to you. And if we're not, you will you will wipe us out because we're sinful. You will send us into exile. But now, God, we're making this promise to you. We're, we're, we're renewing our vows to you. And it's, it says here that, uh, or in this story, they celebrate something called the Feast of Booths to remember that God, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. And they're remembering that God had made them a promise. And they are, at this point in the story, things are, uh, the people of God are broken before God, and they're humble. Okay, so this is Ezra and Nehemiah. And what this points to is the eternal dwelling place of God. So remember the smaller temple. People are thinking, oh no, it's not as great as the former temple. But God says, don't worry, because there's another temple that's even greater 
that I'm going to give to you. And we see this in the New Testament. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm going to read these. Uh, John 2, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's the temple right there. And also Revelation 21. One day we're going to see this with our very eyes. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Points back to Eden, doesn't it? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they're talking about the people of God within the confines of the 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 place where God dwells. And God says, this is a true temple. So even if this other temple this old, this new temple is not as great as the old temple. Don't worry, guys, because I am committed to my promise. I will keep it. Okay? So this brings us to Esther. Sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks. All right, so the um, Esther. So uh, Esther is unique in that this is a one book in the Bible that... Can anyone tell me why the book of Esther is unique? Why it's not mentioned. Yeah. The name of God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. But it's kind of cool how things work out. So there are um, a few characters in the book. There is Esther. Esther. There is Nehemiah. I'm not Nehemiah. There is um, Mordecai. Yeah. There's Mordecai, and then there is, uh, sorry, I need my notes. Uh, and there's, uh, Artaxerxes. And then there is Haman. These are the four main characters in the book of Esther. So Esther is this, um, is this Jewish woman, and her, she has, she has a cousin in Mordecai, and then Artaxerxes is a king, and Haman is one of the advisors to the king. So, Artaxerxes, he, um, he sees that Esther is a beautiful woman and he takes her as one of his, um, as one of his wives or, uh, concubines. And, um, Mordecai says, and there, there's a scene in the book where Mordecai, when Haman says, bow down to me, and Mordecai, the, as a Jew, he says, I'm not gonna bow down to you. And this infuriates Haman, and he, he says, uh, so there's like bad blood between these two. Uh, there's anger, and uh, and Haman says, Artaxerxes, these people, these these Jewish people, they are rebellious. You can't trust them. Um, allow me to take care of them because they are a threat to you. They're a threat to me. I don't like them. Um, and Artaxerxes says. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. And then Esther, she she gets wind of Haman's plan because Mordecai has offended her. Haman comes up with this plan to dist- to annihilate all the Jews. And what is the significance, or why why is this so important that the Jews uh, will or will not live? Because someone's going to come from the, the Jews. It's the Davidic covenant. And then if all the Jews are wiped out, what happens? The line, the line of David is wiped out. So, 
Esther uh, gets wind of the plan of Haman, and she talks to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, um, this is what Haman is going to do. And Artaxerxes is not a Jewish king. Uh, she doesn't. He doesn't know that she's Jewish, but she listens to him. And if not for her beauty, if not for her being where she is, where she is, things will not have worked out the same way. So, uh, Esther four. Let me see. Uh, Chelsea, can I have you read Esther four, please? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Thanks. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was placed where she was that specific time, that specific place for this purpose. To make sure that the line of David would continue to go on. So um, Artaxerxes, he hears of this and he goes, uh, okay, um, I'm going to take care of Haman. Haman Oh, actually, another thing that happens in the in the book of Esther is Haman says, I, "I'm going to choose a day in which I'm going to exterminate the Jews." So he, what he does is he casts lots. It's basically our equivalent of rolling dice. And he says, "I'm going to leave it completely up to chance when these Jews are going to be annihilated." Uh, but Artaxerxes he finds out, and he has Haman hanged. If not for Esther being where she was, if not for Mordecai playing his role, if not for this uh, Artaxerxes who had his heart softened by God, if not for Haman having his plan thwarted, the Davidic covenant, again, would be, uh, that, that would be the end of the Davidic covenant. But God, even though he's not mentioned, God is always working behind the scenes. He's working in a thousand ways in the life of Israel and also in our own life. And uh, we see what happens here. Um, can I have, uh, Roxanne, can I have you read Esther 9 and we'll end in just a couple minutes. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Assyrius, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had that had returned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor alright so the Jews, because of what happened in the book of Esther, um, they, they started celebrating, and it's something called Purim. Uh, and this is, even in modern day, uh, for modern day Jews, they still, still celebrate this thing called Purim. And uh, I actually went to uh, something, like like kind of like a mock, uh, mock Purim celebration. And what the... What Purim is, it's a retelling of the story of how the Jews were saved. And uh, it's, it's really fun. Like, this, it's a really festive thing. And then they read through the book of Esther. And then every time people mention um, Mordecai, everyone's cheers. They're like, yay, yay, yay. Every time someone mentions Haman, you're supposed to boo. And you're supposed to drown out the sound of the name of Haman by making these ugly noises. And it's really fun. You stop your feet. You boo. And um, <coughs> it's, it's a really happy time. And Purim is something that the Jews celebrate even today because they recognize if not for what happened in the book of Esther, there would be no more Jews. There would be no line of David secured. 
And this is why this is why even though God is not mentioned, it's so important. And what this points to is number one that God is in control of everything. That in ev- in the darkest shadows, when it seems like God is not working, God remains committed to His own glory. God remains committed to His promise to us. It also points to uh, a final deliverer. So Esther, he, she she uh, is reminiscent of who knows of two other deliverers in the Old Testament. One of his, or well, two two main ones. One of them starts with J. Joseph. He's a deliverer for the people of God. Another one, Moses delivering the people of God out. Esther is another deliverer. All these deliverers point to the great and true deliverer who is Jesus Christ. And this is what Esther is ultimately pointing to. For us as people of God, we, if not for our deliverer, we would be doomed. There's, there's Haman who was hanged on the gallows. I think this points to another man who was hanged as well. And he took the punishment for our sin. He took the punishment for our rebellion so that we might live, so that God's covenants to his people would be true and would, would continue on. So this is the historical books. I know that it was, uh, there's so much we weren't able to cover, but any questions or comments before we close out? All right. So what this is, it's, this book after book in the historical books is God saying, no matter what happens, no matter how much my people mess up, no matter how many Jews or Gentiles get in the picture, no matter uh, how many times you forget, I'm remain, I remain committed to you. Even if it takes hundreds of years, even if it seems like things will never work out, God says, the David covenant I made to you and I will keep it. There's going to come from the, from the line of David a true and good king for us. I think your like lesson, as I'm just listening to it again, it's really so encouraging that God gives us these pictures, that God gave his people picture after picture, right? That a savior is coming, um, even as the people sin in our style. Yeah. And it's, um, it's like the story that's told over and over and over and over again until the final story comes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And do you guys know why? Like, why we meet on Sundays? It's because we 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 come to worship and submit to someone who will truly never fail. I think uh, as I was reading through these books, I was what came to mind was uh, we so often put our hopes on people, and we think this person seems like a good person. I can trust. I can trust him. I can trust her, and. Um, the same way that the books of the Bible tell us is no matter how good you are, no matter how good your intentions are, you're always going to fail. And these people that you put your hope in, like, don't be surprised if your friends or your family or your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, don't be surprised if they disappoint you. Don't be surprised if they mess up because no one can fulfill the role of the true Messiah. No one can fulfill the role of the one who is promised to love you fully and truly and completely. So when people fail us, don't be surprised. Don't be too harsh on them. Um, give them grace because neither you or I can be who Jesus is. Okay? Um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for rescuing us. Thank you for remaining faithful to your covenants. 
and we are happy, we are filled with life, we're encouraged because you are committed to us, God. So remind us of this truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Yeah.